Hey everyone, this is Allison Ray, and you're listening to the Pace and Pattern Podcast. Today's episode, I'll be interviewing a good friend, Deb Dunlevy, about her ninth book, Laughing at the Dark, a memoir of motherhood and mayhem. This conversation is for all the moms and dads out there who struggle with feeling like they're doing everything wrong, who want to figure out what really matters when it comes to parenting, and yeah, it was just a really great conversation. To give you a little bit of context, I uh, lived in Indianapolis about, I guess, three or four years ago now, and that was when I was in the thick of having babies and small kids, and I just felt like I was failing and didn't know what to do and felt really lost. So I was reading all these different parenting books that were just making me more anxious and uptight. And then I would talk to Deb, who actually was a missionary in Argentina, raising her kids when she was first having babies. And so her perspective was just so different and so refreshing and helpful. So I begged her, because I know I knew that she was a writer. This is actually, you know, her ninth book. And so I begged her, like, I know this isn't like anything you've written before, but please can you write a book about parenting just to help me relax a little bit? And turns out she actually did. So it's pretty exciting. And this book is everything and more than I could have hoped for. So yeah, enjoy. Deb, I'm so excited that you were able to come on this podcast with me. Oh, well, I'm really happy to be here. This really is a dream come true. Honestly, this book is a dream come true to me. I feel like I basically harassed you for months, and I can't believe that you is actually here, and, and you actually wrote it, and it felt, I literally, I cried when I got it in the mail. I was so excited. <laughs> well, and when I opened it up and saw the, the dedication... That's well, me, right? That is you. And you can totally take credit for this because I don't know if I ever would have done it without your constant prodding. Well, I mean, I feel like it is a really different book from the other ones that you've written, mm-hmm. for sure. But I just have this feeling that this book is going to really impact people in an amazing way. I think there's, I've just never read anything like it. And I've read a lot of parenting books. So, well, thanks. I hope that's true. I I was very reluctant to write a parenting book. So, well, I wouldn't even call it a parenting book. I think I think you're right about that. It's, I don't. I probably miss. It's you know, it's a memoir. It's a parent. It's a memoir, basically a collection of essays about your life that happened to touch on parenting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. But I did write it specifically with, uh, with other moms in mind and stuff. So I it kind of straddles that line a little bit. (laughs) So you're not wrong to call it a parenting book in some ways, but it's certainly not a a how-to or a self-help book in that sense because I'm not uh, qualified or able to give a (laughs) how-to on parenting. Well, here's the truth. No one is. You know, that's the thing I've realized is that, and this is coming from a parenting book junkie (laughs) because I feel like I had or I just had so much anxiety about parenting. I literally read, I think, 12 books on infant sleep. Oh, wow. You know? And then, anyway, but so I think it's just interesting with people that are parenting right now, because I'll talk to my mom and she's like, oh, we just had the one parenting book. And it felt like, 
I don't know. It felt like there was this, like before this current generation and, and like a little bit before me, it was kind of just like, oh, I just did what my parents did and I followed my instincts. And there just wasn't the same kind of like pressure to do it in a certain exact way mm-hmm. that I feel like we're experiencing today. Mm-hmm. And that this book is just extremely freeing from that pressure to me. Well, I'm glad. I I I feel like, you know, however many years older I am than you are, um, we my generation was maybe a little bit on the front end of that wave of like reading all the books and doing all the things. And I remember when I was about to have my first baby reading a parenting book and someone gave me a second one and I like started them, found them overwhelming and was like, I'm not doing this. I don't, I am not going to read the book. I don't want to (laughs) know. Like I just, um, what did help me was people, especially like at the time it was more even my peers than people that were older than me, but just people normalizing my experience that I could talk to my friends Um, you know, this was like in the very early days of blogging. So we like started up these little blogs that, um, we just basically shared with each other, but having people normalize what was happening to me was super helpful to me in a way that parenting books never were. So that was really my goal for this, that it would be more like those blog posts back then were for me, (laughs) like someone's stories. Now I have some perspective because I'm further down the road, but, um, but mostly I just wanted to help people feel not alone in what they were doing and to understand that there is no figuring this out. Like there's no being like, now I know what I'm doing. At least not as far as I can tell. (laughs) That's not a thing that exists. Yeah. I mean, I think that I I really feel like this is one of the things that is just extremely unique about this book is, and also I think just the way you use stories, the way you just use your own personal stories that connected and then just like a nugget of insight that you have now being a few years removed. I actually heard this really funny. It was on the, I think it was on the raising girls and boys podcast, but um, they were talking about having hope in parenting. And one of the things they said was that make sure you have people that are about 10 years ahead of where you are, because the people that are in your phase or a little bit in front of you aren't going to admit how terrible their kids were (laughs) like they're still trying to trying to like act as though everything's perfect and they're doing it all right but people who are about 10 years ahead of you are like oh no these things went wrong oh yeah that's okay that is really true I think that's probably great advice (laughs) I, I like or I think because my oldest now is six and your oldest is 15 16 16 yeah so you're exactly yeah 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 Yeah, I think that's just, um, I think anyone who gets a little bit of distance from a situation, it's just easier to have, like, be a little more honest about how it was actually going. For sure. Uh, For sure. Which I think is just really refreshing. (laughs) I, I don't know. We were talking about this earlier, but I think there's also a temptation right now for a lot of moms and just a lot of people in general to get sucked into like a very narrow niche of like what they think is right. I think it's like when you're listening to a lot of podcasts that have very similar um, ideas to what you already believe or are reading blogs or whatever our digital world is kind of pushing us to, we kind of get in this very 
narrow view of what is good and right. And I think that that can be especially true for moms. I read this in that I read this book called Social Chemistry. I mentioned this on our last, my last podcast episode, but in that book they mentioned that the second most cliquish time of life or group of people are new moms. Mm-hmm. Like it's like high schoolers are number one, and then after that is new moms who find like their tribe of like oh I'm a baby wearing mom or I'm this kind of mom. And I just wanted to hear if you could speak to that idea of um, you call it a parenting aesthetic. I would just love to hear more of your thoughts on that. Yeah. Um, so I, for people who don't know my story, I, my husband and I, Nate, were, we, were, um, we were missionaries in Argentina for about 10 years. So we started that when we moved there when we were 25, no kids. And we came home when we were 35 with three kids. So all of those like new mom years of my life, um, not all of them, with the exception of one year in the middle, um, I lived in Argentina. So I was making that adjustment to being a new mom while also living in a cross-cultural setting. So the perspective that that gave me, there were many things about that that were very difficult, obviously. (laughs) But the perspective that that gave me was I would read and hear things from people here at home in the States, the way they raised their kids, the way my friends were raising their kids, the books, all of the things. And it would all sound good and be logical. Plus, plus I had my own, you know, the way I was raised, obviously what felt comfortable to me and to Nate. But then the people immediately around me were raising their kids with totally different cultural expectations in a totally different way. And bedtime looked different and meals looked different. Everything was different. And while that made it sort of hard for me to figure out what path to walk with my own kids, and we ended up sort of walking a middle path between those two cultures, which of course means everybody thought you were doing it wrong. <laughs> yeah, But um, that was helpful to me in my general understanding that people in Argentina would let their kids stay up till midnight when they were three. <laughs> and my friends at home were putting their kids to bed at seven and letting them cry it out, which is not a thing anyone in Argentina would ever do because that seemed cruel. And, you know, you would introduce foods one at a time to your babies very carefully and in a controlled way in the States and in Argentina, my pediatrician is like, you know, just give her Sprite, but let, let the bubbles go out of it first, you know? So like flat Sprite, that was his recommendation. (laughs) Um, And this is my doctor. (laughs) Yeah. Right. So, um, but what you kind of learn is like, okay, but in both places, these kids are growing up and they're like still healthy and they're still like, normal people and they're still living like happy lives. I mean, as many of them here as there, at least not everyone, obviously, but, and you kind of, you do sort of realize, Oh, there isn't one right way to do this. You are doing what works for you. And that ended up being really helpful to me. Then even when we moved home and we've always lived in really close community with other people, but even the people that I live in close community with now who are much more like me than my Argentine neighbors were, they grew up in a more similar situation, we have some more similar cultural backgrounds, whatever, they still have they still have ways they raise their kids that are different than the ways I raise mine. And that was where Nate, Nate's the one who coined the term parenting aesthetic, um, because it's not your parenting values, exactly. Mm -hmm. Um, it's not, it's just 
the little things, what you tolerate that other people don't tolerate or vice versa. (laughs) And I am ridiculously free with screen time for my kids, but my very close friends whose kids are with my kids every day are more restrictive than I am. Or I am much more restrictive about how much noise my children make inside the house. (laughs) Um, And my very close friends who I see very often are like, just let them shout and be free, you know, and I'm like, I can't live with that. I Um, like that you wrote you were okay with sass. (laughs) I'm okay with sass because I'm sassy. and, And I, I, Nate and I both accept aggression pretty well because, um, that's just more our personality, which is a good thing. Cause of course we pass that on to our kids. And, um, I understand that some people, you know, allow their kids, you know, make the word stupid and a bad word or make the word shut up a bad word. And I understand that. I understand the reason why you would choose that. Um, we have some things, you know, in our house, you can call each other weird all day long, you know, but you don't call each other dumb, not in a non-joking way, at least, you know. And so um, we all just have our things and it's more, it's not about what's right or what's wrong or what is valuable or not valuable or what's going to harm your kids or not harm them. There are obviously things that fall in the harmful th- category, but those those things are like pretty obvious what they are. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Um, the truth is all the other things are just like, what can you live with? What can, how do you want to live your life? Do you want a quiet house? You may not be able to get it as quiet as you want, but you can set certain boundaries, you know? And like, do you, do you want to watch TV every night? Then you're probably gonna have to accept that your kids also will watch TV every night, you know? And all of those things. And you can just, live the life that you want to live and it's not going to hurt your kids. Well, I, yeah, I think one thing, uh, I mean, I had, I did natural childbirth, you know, with our Mm -hmm. kids, but I remember somebody saying like, really, if you're going to choose natural childbirth, choose it because it's experience like you want to have as the mom. You don't have to feel like, like, the kid is going to be fine either way. Like, you don't have to think, like, oh, if I birth this way, then my child will be better off. It's more just, like, what is the birthing experience if you had the, pref- if you had the you know, freedom to choose, like, you would choose. And I think it comes down to that kind of thing with so many things. I mean, and I also think there is that tendency for people, if we're living close, in close community with other people it can be so easy to focus on those differences. Like Sharon and my friend Sharon, when we were living in Indianapolis, we had, we were literally pregnant. We both have four kids. We were pregnant at the same time with all four of our kids for some period of that time. And during that time, it was like when I was having, you know, our, my second and third and Sharon is like a very, was like a very strict baby wise kind of parent who did, You know, her kids were sleeping through the night at six months of age. It was just much more structured. And my kids were, like, in my bed for (laughs) way too long, probably. And and I remember, like, it was just funny at that phase because I just, we would have not really, like, conflict, but we would have a lot of conversations about, like, oh, you're doing this and I'm doing that. And so then, you know, it's been now, we moved away from Indianapolis. It's been three years. 
we're now in Wilmington, North Carolina. And so Sharon and Kent and her four kids came and stayed with us um, about a week ago. And as we were like living life together, we realized like, oh, no, we have so much in common. Like we are unbelievably similar. Like it's almost laughable how similar we are. And it's like we were taking these like minor discrepancies to kind of like act like we were in two different camps when really it's like we're both Christians. We're both like we're in like a very similar culture. Anyway, I just thought I feel like that's so true. It can be so easy to like almost make like points of division that don't even really matter or impact kids. Yeah, that's totally true. And I think that's the difference between your parenting values and your parenting aesthetic. Like your values the people in my close community do share my same values. That's why we chose mm-hmm. to live in close community with each other. We have the same values, our faith, our, our desire for our kids to really know the Lord, our desire for our kids to live in community and to have these close relationships. Our, we've chosen certain values about being involved in our local community, which for us has affected our school choices and our sports choices and all of those things. We share all of those values with these people in our community. But our aesthetic, the little things, like you said, the kind of childbirth you choose is for you. If you have your kids sleep in your bed or cry it out in their crib, that's for you. (laughs) If you wear your baby or don't wear your baby, that's for you. I'm not saying it doesn't affect your kids. Of course it does. But yes, your kids are going to be fine either way. And it's just about the experience that you want to have. And that's okay. I think... Sometimes we don't, we feel like it's selfish to make decisions for us. And so we try to sort of, it's like a version of spiritualizing things. We try Mm -hmm. to like make these things significant by saying, this is going to be better for my child. Um, But all we do is put weird pressure on ourselves and put weird pressure on each other. Because then if you feel you've made the right choices, that puts you in a position to be kind of judgmental of other people's choices. And that's not going to get you what you want in terms of relationship and even just satisfaction with your own life. I mean, I think that comes down to what you were saying in another chapter where you're talking about the arbitrary. Like we are forced to as parents to make so many decisions. And, and I think that's one of the reasons we can get like really prideful about our own decisions is that, I don't know. I think it, it's like any decision you're making like for the raising of your child, you have to justify it so much to yourself to be like, I am making this choice. And I think that that, anyway, that thing you were saying about like choosing the number of bites, <laughs> yeah, I might just have you explain it. Cause I'm going to butcher it. But I feel like that idea that like, it's hard to admit how much all these decisions we're making probably don't matter. <laughs> yes. Okay. No, what I, what I talk about in the book is that, my kids, you know, this is the thing. They're always like, they don't want to eat whatever it is I've made for dinner. But of course, I'm insisting that they're sitting at the table and they're eating dinner. Because again, that's a choice that we made for our aesthetic that we would do that. And so they're there and they're like, okay, I say, no, you haven't eaten enough. You have to eat more. And they're like, how many more? How many more bites? I just, you guys, there's no answer to that. Like, I mean, there is. And I have friends who have systems who are like the number of bites is the age of the child or 
whatever. And that's fine. That's great. But I was never like that. I would just be like looking at their plate, like vaguely guessing, like I'd say three, three bites seems good. Yeah. You know, like it's totally, there's no rationale behind it. If they asked me, if they lawyered me, I would be sunk because I, I just am making it up as, as I go along. And I don't like doing that. But again, there are so many choices to make all the time. And I think, I think maybe that's part of why you start to let go of things over time. It's not even just that it wears you down, <laughs> though maybe it does wear you down. But I think, okay, so I, I want to say this in the right way. When your kids are little, they take all of your time and energy in some ways, um, but they don't take all of your brain power. Yes. <laughs> Because yeah. you are taking care of them physically all the time. But, you know, I always say babies are boring. And the reason I say <laughs> that is because they're not mentally stimulating. You know, you you have to just care for their needs over and over again. But you have so much time while changing their diapers and nursing and, you know, being awake way too many hours of the night. You have so much time to think. They don't take your brain power. They just leave you with all of this time that your hands are busy and your brain is not. And I think that sometimes leads to moms overthinking all of these things all of the time. What happens as your kids get older is it just picks up and picks up and picks up. And then when they're with you, they're talking to you all the time and they're expecting you to like, you know, pay attention to what they're saying. So suddenly you don't have the, that time to like be sitting there worrying about how much they're eating or not eating or whatever, because you're focused on the stuff they're interested in and what they're talking to you about. And then their activities pick up and all of these things. And you're keeping track of so many more details and schedules and permission slips and good Lord. So you, um, you just have less time <laughs> to like research stuff and think about stuff and overthink things. And so you do, you just end up accepting that you're just, you're just, and you do have to decide. You have to, you have to make choices and make boundaries and rules and whatever as you go. But you are just, you do enough of them on the fly. Yeah. You just kind of realize, and you hope your kids don't totally know how random yeah, it is. Yeah, right. <laughs> yep. I, I mean, I actually think that one of the ways we can, like, we can combat that tendency to overthink, which I think is one of my, and by think, I mean, I know is one of my tendencies is by reading or thinking about something else, you know, just like to keep on feeding our brain with other ideas that aren't just about babies and small children yeah. can be one way that we stay a little more sane and less. That is absolutely, crazy. that is absolutely <laughs> true. I, um, it was when my kids were babies that I started writing books. I started writing novels um, for that reason. Like it, it's just too much time on your hands to think and stress and worry over things. And I was bored, so bored. Um, and so I would just, that's when I started making up stories and doing things like that. Now you have very little time to sit down and write them all down the way you would like. So that in that sense, it was a hard time to start doing that. Um, but yes, um, the idea that I would read books and I would write books or at least short stories or whatever, that was like a lifesaver to me in that stage of life because it was something different to think about. Something that was for me and was feeding my soul, but yeah. um, but wasn't causing me to freak out over them all the time. 
I, I think that your whole idea even about like live your life, live your life and have, and if you can be on the same page with your spouse and have kind of a united vision for your life, then just do that and then bring your kids along with you. Yeah. I feel like that is like the most solid piece of parenting wisdom I've heard in a long time. That one and and later on you mentioned kind of just loving them really well and then also just being the person that you want to be mm-hmm. rather than focusing so much on making them the people that you want them to be, but just try actually like living, living that way. And I was wondering if you could kind of talk a little bit about like you and Nate's relationship and how 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 have y'all done that? How have y'all what what would you say is kind of like the main vision or purpose that you feel like y'all have for your life and how have you brought your kids along on that ride? Yeah, so talking about my relationship with Nate is my favorite thing to do, so I'm happy to do it. Um I always it starts back from like the sort of what is the foundation of our relationship. So, um, so this is where like, you know, if it comes to advice, my advice to people when they're choosing a spouse is always this, like you want your life to be about the same thing, which just means you want to marry someone who wants to build the same kind of life you want to build, (laughs) whatever that means to you. Like, um, Obviously, that involves shared values and whatever. It doesn't necessarily have to mean you want to have the same job or you totally agree on the location you want to live or whatever. Those things can all be worked out. But it does mean they have to want the same kind of life. So if you're looking for a life of um, deeply rooted in one place and um, that's all about your biological family, you need to marry someone who wants that kind of life. You know what I mean? If you want a life of adventure and travel and you hope to live overseas, marry someone who wants that kind of life. <laughs> um, if you want a life that's all about community and other people and it, having people in your home, then you better marry someone who wants that kind of life. Um, because those are the kinds of things that later it becomes a really big struggle if one of you has to give up the kind of life you wanted for the other one. And once you're married, that's what you do have to do. (laughs) Um, That's the commitment you've made. Um, But I think even, um, even then for people who are already married, already have children in their lives, I think sometimes it's, it's a matter of some of those things were probably in place. Um, Perhaps you never thought it through very clearly or whatever. Um, And for Nate and I, the fact that we want the same things from life and our life trajectory has been like all over the place, you know? Um, But we knew we wanted our life to be about community. Our life is about uh, church community in specific. Um, about people knowing the Lord and knowing each other and living really authentic life together. That's who we both are and what we both wanted. And what's developed as a part of that then is that the authenticity of that and the building of that community for us both really involves our life being about uh, art and writing. And that aspect of our life is also a shared, a shared not just value, but a a building block of what we want our life to be like. So 
with those building blocks, that took us to Argentina for a bunch of years, but it also took us to Indianapolis, you know, which I love where I live now, but it, it's not like the most exotic or inspiring place on earth. But the same values that took us to Argentina are the values that took us here. The values of community, of authenticity, and all of those things took us both places and doing both things. And um, over the years, we have each had to sacrifice plenty of things that we would have wanted. But we didn't have to sacrifice them for each other. We sacrificed them for our common vision of what we felt we wanted our life to be, of the life we wanted to build. And that's just been huge. Um, because, because there's no resentment. I don't resent Nate for the fact that I live in Indianapolis, which, you know, if you had told my 20 year old self, I would have screamed and been dramatic about, but because it wasn't, it wasn't Nate's choice that I followed. It was our choice together. And it has turned into a very beautiful thing that I love. And, you know, Nate doesn't blame me that he gave up his sports writing job to work in software, you know, (laughs) because he didn't he didn't do that for me. Um, He did that for our common vision of what we wanted our life to be together, which at this stage of life involves him earning an actual paycheck, you know, and that's just a, and again, that is also turned into a really cool and beautiful thing for his life, even though it wouldn't have been like his most awesome, sexiest choice, you know? Um, And so I just feel like, that sense that you know what you want your life to be about and that you're both committed to that um, can really take away a lot of the like small resentments and competitions that kind of worm their way into people's marriages (laughs) because you're not competing. There's no competition. You are working together to build a thing. And that thing is your family and that thing is your life and your work and whatever it is for you. And for everybody, it's something slightly different. And then when your kids are a part of that, so our kids are a part of the life that we want to build in the sense that like my day-to-day life very much revolves around my kids right now. That's just what it is. They they all three play sports and, <laughs> you know, instruments and do all these things. And we have all these activities. My day-to-day life is about my kids, but there's an overarching purpose to my life and a big a bigger thing that Nate and I are trying to build um, that those, that my kids are a part of. And that has been really important for them because it sort of takes the pressure. Like all of my expectations for success and joy in life are not resting on my kids' shoulders. (laughs) Mm -hmm. They are not bearing the weight of my future success and happiness. I want my kids to be happy and successful in whatever way that is to them. But that's not, they're not carrying my hopes and dreams into the future. They are living their own life and going to build their own thing. The thing that I'm building, they're a huge part of, but they are not the only part of. And I feel like that's huge for me. It's huge for my marriage. It's, it's huge for, uh, you know, my friends who get to be a part of this bigger thing I'm building, but it's just also really big for my kids because it frees them to have their own life. And that's a thing that maybe it doesn't seem, it's not a thing you think about that much when they're little, (laughs) but now at the stage of life they are, I can really see the difference between people who are 
between people who are so focused on their kids as their only thing <laughs> and, and people who are like, these are my kids and they're awesome. Um, but they're a part of my thing. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and again, they're the biggest, the biggest piece right now. And they're always going to be a huge, huge piece of it. Um, but the reality of, of your whole life and of your marriage, hopefully as well, is that, you know, you have these kids, they're there for, you know, if you combine all three of them, 20, 22 years, 25 years, and then they're gone and you live another, what, 30, 40, 50 years after they leave home, <laughs> depending on how long you live. That's just like a lifetime's worth of stuff. You don't want your life to be over when your kids leave home. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and they don't want that for you either. As, as all of us, you know, know now as we are adults with our parents, like you want your parents to have a life. So. I think that idea of you said of you, there already was a story happening before a journey happening before they were born. Mm -hmm. And then that story is going to keep going after they leave the house. And I think that that's just a really, I, I think it's beautiful. And it's also can be inspiring for them to be like, to want to go find what their purpose is and what their thing is going to be as they go out and build their life versus like feeling that they have to be an extension of us. I think just even separating that our kids are not an extension of us and our ego is just so hard to do, but it's so, so necessary and so true. Yeah, it is. Absolutely. And I, yeah, it's just a thing that that becomes more and more clear as they get older, you know, you're wanting them to become their own people and they want that too. Um, but you have to like be intentional to, to create a life in which they feel free to go off and be their own people. And you feel free <laughs> um, to let them do that without it just being like destructive to who you are as a person, <laughs> because you have other things, you know? Yeah. I, well, before I leave the Nate topic, I was thinking about, so I'm reading this book in bed or have been, you know, over the last couple weeks and I can't even tell you how many sections of this I've read aloud to Joseph either because I thought it was hilarious or I was crying and I wanted him to hear why I was crying. But I think one of the parts that, and I talked to Sharon and she did the same thing with Kent that I read was the, um, was the part about, I might just read out loud. There's this sure. whole section that you were talking about where you said just how much, how critical kids are of, their moms of their parents in general it's like you know i made Vale a little she wanted a penguin party for her birthday and so i made her cupcakes and frosted them and then i bought little plastic penguins to put on top you know to look like snow and after the party was over and i had made all these like construction paper penguin decorations that were all around the house and i'd hung little snowflakes that i had cut out and after anyway, after everything was over, Vale came to me and was like, "Mommy, I really wanted one cake with just a penguin head on it." <laughs> like that was her takeaway from the party. And Vale is like, you know, she's really sweet and so affirming so much of the time, but she I mean, she's also just a kid who's just like just giving me her feedback and her criticism, which I think is just 
such a part of raising kids is they are honest and they are going to tell you, mommy, your hair looks weird like that. (laughs) Yes. You know, and I think that this piece of advice that I'm going to read from Nate. Okay, I'm going to read this real quick. It says, I can't tell you the number of birthdays or Mother's Days that I thought, it's my special day. Maybe my kids will treat me special today, only to have them complain about dinner and argue when I asked to take a family picture, just like it was any other day. More than once, I told them that the only present I wanted that day was no whining. Instead, I got Barbie hair clips and a Batman t-shirt, along with a normal dose of disapproval. And this is the advice. You said the main advice, piece of advice Nate gives to new dads is to tell their wives early and often how wonderful they are. Kids mainly give negative feedback, he tells them. She doesn't need you to criticize. She already feels like a failure. She needs you to tell her that she's doing a great job. And then he said, I'm Deb Dunleavy and I approved this message. (laughs) So this is definitely one that I read aloud to Joseph. It's like there's certain things that only your husband can say because he's the one seeing it day in, day out, and you're not going to get it from your kids. It's like, I told Joseph, I was like, you're the only one who can tell me my butt looks good in these jeans and that I'm doing a good job with my kids, you know? Yes. Yes. So, so true. And I, um, yes, Nate was always so great at that for me. He was and part of it is just he is a, you know, he's an Enneagram 8 and a very, like, settled and confident person in general, which, thank God for me, um, because I would be like, I'm doubting, I'm doubting my choices as a parent. And based on their current reaction, I think perhaps I've gone down the entire wrong path and I'm totally failing. And um, and he would just be like, no, it's fine. You're doing fine. They're they're fine. They don't know. They're just kids. You're, they're great. You're doing great. Like all the time. And that just saved my sanity. Um, and you're right. That always means way more coming from your husband than from anyone else. Um, though I will say, I go out of my way to say it to all of my mom friends as often as I can, because you really just can't hear it enough. Like, yeah. yeah. Um, and, you know, unfortunately, not everybody has a husband who will say those kinds of things to them. Um, so, yeah, we just we need to hear it. And yes, people should definitely feel free to read that out loud to their parents. It's an it's advice from Nate, not from me. I just approve of it. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, it's great advice. I, you know, there's certain things that so I think certain husbands are more naturally, or people in general are more naturally like affirming, and for other others, they may be thinking all those things, but it's just not as natural for them to be affirming. And so I even tell Joseph, I'll be like, hey, I really need you to tell me I'm doing a good job. Or I really need you to tell me I look nice when I get ready to go when we're going on this date. And even though I know that I have told him to say it, it still feels really good to hear it, you know? It does. It really does. You would think it would take away the meaning, but it doesn't. Maybe a little bit, but I think some more introverted uh, dads out there might just need the nudge of like, hey, here's something I might need to hear from you on occasion. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, and I, for sure, there are plenty of things like that that I've just had to be like, I'm just going to ask for what I need and I'm going to accept that asking for it. People can't read your mind. 
Right. And in my case, my husband is like more emotionally in tune than I am, which is a very different dynamic than most people experience. Um, I'm the one who like has no idea about my own feelings, but, but there are still plenty of things that I'm just like, I mean, we even, we had a thing last night and we've been married almost 22 years. That was just like a stupid day to day thing that I had to be like, I clearly have not been clear enough. What I need is exactly this thing, you know, <laughs> like, yes. Um, and as soon as I told him, he was just like, oh, I feel so stupid for not realizing that. And of course, you know, like, we'll do whatever to make sure that need is met, um, which is awesome and so appreciated. But I just have to get over my feeling, which, you know, again, 22 years we've been married and I still struggle to do this. Get over that sense of like, I don't want to ask for it. I want you to just know what it is because then then it'll be meaningful. Like, that's just not true. <laughs> he can't read your mind. And if he's not naturally given to compliments or naturally given to being in touch with emotions or whatever, he's not going to do the things you want him to do naturally. You're just going to have to ask. <laughs> You're just going to have to straight up ask. You are. And that's okay. <laughs> yes, it is. It really is. So, Deb, I, this might feel awkward for you, but I would love it if you could read us that section you wrote on um, on when you got in that car accident during the polar vortex. Because I think another, another dimension of this book that was extremely freeing was the way that you kind of handle dealing with hard things. And I think there's a lot of things that, as parents, we are afraid of, but we also don't even want to, like, look it in the eye. We have things where, I don't know, even just the concepts like death or true tragedy happening. And I think that's actually, along with all the other funny and great advice, I feel like that's one of the biggest, the way you handle the dark parts of the world and hard things that inevitably happen to all of us is just really beautiful. And so I would just love to hear your, hear you read that section. Sure. Yeah. So just to sort of give context for it, I, I do, I am describing in this, uh, a few years ago, I, we were trapped in one of those polar vortex winters, you know, and here in Indiana, we had a full week of like negative 20 degree weather, which is not normal for here. Um, and the kids didn't even have school. It was so cold. And so I had gone to, um, after days of being trapped in the house, <laughs> I had gone to have a play date with some friends. And as I was turning left into my friend's driveway, somebody came from behind and like T-boned my car and spun us out into their yard. So, um, and it was negative 20. So <laughs> um, that's sort of the context for this part of it. While the EMTs checked out my children inside the house, I described the accident to the police officer. He took notes and we walked around to see the damage on the car. That was when I first truly saw the point of impact. It was right at the rear edge of the driver's side back door. My little Lucy had been sitting in a booster seat just inside that door, a few inches difference, and she would have been crushed. Numb from shock and frigid temperatures, something in me distantly felt the horror of that almost reality. All I could think was that I should never have left home that day. I don't know if it's biological wiring or cultural expectations, but most of the moms I know inherently believe that if something bad happens, it means they've done something wrong. Your son breaks a dish at someone else's house. You should have been watching him more closely. Your daughter makes another kid cry. 
You should have taught her better. Your baby is sick. You should have identified the symptoms sooner. You straggle into church late with only half the required number of shoes on feet. You're a terrible mom who can't get it together. It's like we think that if we were doing life right, it wouldn't be this difficult. And if that lie doesn't make you laugh, you just haven't lived long enough yet. If I've learned anything in life so far, it's that you could be Oprah, Beyonce, and Mother Teresa all rolled into one, and bad stuff would still happen to you. Because this world is a wild place, and you aren't the only person living here. I'm not always a perfect driver, but that day I had done everything right. My car was in good condition, the roads were clear, it was broad daylight, we were all wearing seatbelts, I drove the speed limit, and I used my turn signal, I was alert and undistracted, I didn't have to mess up for something terrible to happen. Sometimes accidents happen and they can't be prevented. Sometimes someone else makes the mistake and I have to live with the consequences. Sometimes my kids have to live with the consequences. And that day on that road, it was an accident. The old man had no intention of hurting my children. Another car had turned out he had gotten confused and he had swerved when he shouldn't have. We just happened to be in the way. Hard as we try to prevent it, People hurt us, and they hurt our kids. Sometimes it's good people who make mistakes, and sometimes it's bad people who make decisions. Reckless comments from family members about their appearance or their abilities. <laughs> kids at school who are petty and cruel. Friends who betray them. Stalkers on the internet. Men who yell vile things at our daughters. Drunk drivers. And yes, it's our job to live wisely. We wear seatbelts and we learn about boundaries and we walk away from abusers. We don't touch hot stoves and we don't put our faith in liars. But no one gets through life unscathed. How would you even do that? And how lonely would it be to try? As much as our job is to keep our kids alive, it's even more important to teach them how to live, how to navigate dangers, and how to ask the right questions. The question isn't how to prevent others from hurting you. The question is how to live a life of joy in a world where others will sometimes hurt you. Because I know there are some things you can't laugh at, but weirdly, you can still be happy in a world where they exist. I have not found joy by locking my family in where we can never get hit by a careless driver. I've found joy by going out into the cold, beautiful world. I've found it by marveling at my 10-year-old daughter's ability to be calm in crisis. I found it by helping the old man who hit me pick up his tomatoes off the roadside. I found it in my friends bringing me hot tea as I wait in the snow. I found it in snuggling my five-year-old under a heated blanket and watching Frozen in the pediatric ER while doctors make sure her injured shoulder is okay. Maybe you'll find joy in a different way than I do. I can't tell you where you'll discover it, but I suspect you'll be surprised. I suspect it will be hidden where you never thought to look. It might even be hidden where it doesn't seem to belong. To steal a quote from the great Tim Riggins, that's Friday Night Lights for you. I think it's time to embrace the suck. Because joy doesn't live somewhere far away from the crap of life. Joy lives in the middle of it. It may be the weirdest truth of this dangerously exciting world. Ah, oh, so good. Because it is just so true. <laughs> that doing the whole... I don't know, wanting to wrap our kids in bubble wrap and keep everyone inside and only feed them leafy greens. It's just <laughs> not going to be the best way to live, probably. It's really not. It's a very lonely way to live <laughs> and doesn't actually make everyone happy in the end. And doesn't, and I think even just the acceptance of 
we're not in control, even if we want to be, and even if we try to be, we just aren't. And, we, and it's like a forced recognition of having to let go, let go of that control, mm-hmm. which I think is so good. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I, I write in another place about that my son had, you know, life-threatening appendicitis <laughs> a couple of years after that. And that's just one of those examples of things. Like, again, you could stay locked in your house and you can't stop <laughs> things like that from happening. You mm-hmm. can't, like, predict them. You can't avoid them. Um, this is the world we live in. Like, our own bodies just try to kill us sometimes randomly. Like, so the key is to figure out how you can, how you can find joy and life and the things that you want from your life without avoiding that stuff because avoiding it's just not possible. Yeah. Max, my, um, five-year-old in January, he, uh, he, they, Joseph brought him home from Walmart cause they had been going out to get presents for the grandparents who were going to come visit and Joseph said, or no, Gwen came in and said, Max swallowed a coin. And I was like, what? Max swallowed a coin. <laughs> and Joseph was like, this is one of those, you know how you mentioned that you are on team, it's probably going to be fine. Mm-hmm. Like Joseph is definitely on team, it's probably going to be fine. And I was like, Joseph, he swallowed a coin? And Joseph said, well, yeah, he wasn't choking. So, I mean, he's going to be fine. It's fine. And so then I've been down and I'm like, Max, what kind of coin was it? Was it a penny? Was it a quarter? Was it a nickel? I'm showing him all the things. And Max says, actually, I think it was a battery. Oh, my God. And I said, what? And he was like, yeah, it was kind of silver and it had a little X in the middle of it. And so he had swallowed a button battery. And so I dig around the back of the car and I find like a wrapper to the button battery. And I found like that he must have gotten it out of. I don't know how a button battery in the package ended up in the back of the car. He, like, must have pulled a bag from, like, the back seat and gotten it out of there. Anyway, so I'm, like, sobbing hysterically, crying, praying out loud, saying, Lord, please protect Max, you know, as we drive to the ER. And then, anyway, long story short, they ended up having to get it out with, like, an endoscopy. And I was just thinking, what if I hadn't figured out it was a battery, you know, what if, or what if we hadn't, like, what if he hadn't been able to articulate that it was a battery and they, it wasn't passing through his system. And it's just amazing how those situations are just like, so just such close calls constantly, you know? And I think it's just, we have to just trust that there's someone else in control, that God is in control and that, I mean, I could spend my life every five, 15 minutes saying, Max, have you eaten any batteries? What have you eaten today? What have you seen? You know, because apparently our pediatrician was like, yeah, some kids just eat stuff. If your kid eats one thing, they're probably going to eat another thing. <laughs> least comforting thing someone can tell you. <laughs> but, oh. but you can't. Anyway, I guess what I'm saying is I'm going to put the batteries up very high. But I can't live my whole life in fear of Max somehow wandering somewhere and finding another battery. <laughs> Yes. And I think it's really, it's an important part of my faith and my trust in the God who made me and made my kids <laughs> that I don't just trust that he will protect them from those things. Yeah. I trust that he has an ultimately good plan for their life. 
And I acknowledge that that plan for their life includes sometimes those bad things actually happening. Mm. Yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? There's all yeah. the near, there's all the near misses and you thank God that he protected them. But there are times when it's not a miss. Right. Do you know right. what I mean? Yeah. There are times when an actually horrible thing happens to your kid and your trust in God is not dependent on him preventing those things. Your trust in him is dependent on knowing that the plan he has for them is good. And that is hard. That's a that's a next level level of trust. You know, like that is really saying I don't trust you to do all the actions I want you to do. What I trust is that you are a person who cares about me and my kids. <laughs> And that that's not going to look the way I want it all the time, but that ultimately you have something going on that's worthwhile in the same way that I had a story I started before my kids were born and I'm going to continue after they're gone. God is a story that he started Mm. before any of us were born and that is continuing well past after we are gone. It's a big story. It's an important story. And being a part of it is what gives our lives meaning and value and makes them wonderful. And, it sometimes means that really bad, hard, awful stuff happens to us. That's part of the story that he's he's building, the thing that he's building. And that's a hard thing. And I, I've talked to plenty of people who were like, I just can't accept that. I, I won't believe in that God. <laughs> I won't trust that. And I, I kind of don't blame them because on an emotional level, that, that sounds absolutely horrible. But to me, that's actually the most comforting thing Mm -hmm. because I know I can't stop all the bad things from happening. And if, if my, my own value or happiness was dependent on stopping them, (laughs) then I wouldn't have any (laughs) because I, I can't. And so um, knowing that actually those things are incorporated in something bigger to me is the most comforting thing there is. Yeah. I think hundred <laughs> percent. Yeah. That's what I was trying to say with the Max story. It wasn't necessarily that like, we have to just trust that God will always protect them from the batteries they eat, but just trusting that he is in control of either outcome. Yes. Like each, each one. And we might not have all the perspective that it takes to fully grasp and understand. Yes. But it's like, if we trust that he is good and that he has a good plan for the world and for us, then even if it's the worst thing we could imagine, then maybe we can still, we can still, I don't know, find hope. Yes. Well, I had one more part I wanted to, because I think (laughs) that that's one good way. Actually, that's the ultimate best way, I think, of going about coping with tragedy. But, um, But I also think one of the things that is just beautiful in this book is, like, there is hard stuff, and, like, there is gritty reality all throughout this book and there is hilarity like (laughs) like coupled with it and i think that that is the levity of of finding things to laugh at and finding the absurdity in in life is one of the things that makes this book so beautiful it's hard it's like real direct truth but it's also uh, hysterical. So I think, <laughs> I don't know. I was hoping I wanted to get you to read a funny part, but I don't know if we, do you feel like you have time for that? Sure. Okay. I kind of wanted to do the one where you what, take Ellie to the playground. Okay. Yeah. 
So I, again, to give a little context, I'm talking in this chapter about um, how my friends and I started in the very early days of blogging. Um, we we um, created these personal or family blogs on Zanga, which you have to be a certain age to have even heard I of Zanga. I had a Zanga. Thanks. All right. Awesome. That makes me feel a little less old. Uh, so we had these Zango blogs that we would write about um, and how that so that helped me so much. Like I was talking about before, just having like a sense of perspective and um, normalizing my life a little. Um, so this is from that. One Saturday, I wrote about how Ellie had woken me up early with her usual restless longing to go out, out, out into the world. I didn't have much energy for going, but holding back that hurricane child would have taken even more energy. So we put on our coats and headed toward the playground in the plaza. Outside, the air was chilly. We were the only ones on the street. In our neighborhood, the weekends were for late night parties and more people went to bed at 7 a.m. than woke up at that time. At the playground, I let go of her hand and let her run free, watching carefully any time she bent down to pick something up. Broken glass and cigarette butts were as plentiful as the sad tufts of grass, so some vigilance was required. She climbed the wooden slide and swung on the squeaky swings. I tried to focus on my radiant child and not on the dreary surroundings. But it was Saturday morning, and I was tired and sad. It hadn't been an easy few months. And then my girl came running toward me with something small held in her pudgy hand. She held it up, this tiny living thing she had found. It was a scraggly flower, a weed really, but the small white blossom lifted my thought, heart. Even here, I thought to myself, even here there's beauty. And then I lifted up my eyes and looked over my daughter's head and saw a man peeing into the bushes. <laughs> <laughs> Mommy, Ellie wanted to know as we walked home hurriedly, why are you laughing? And I couldn't explain, but I also couldn't stop. There's nothing funny about your child being exposed to public urination, but that doesn't mean you won't giggle all the way home. And you'll definitely laugh out loud later when you're writing about it to your friends, because sometimes you can find beauty in the middle of ashes, and sometimes you just find absurdity and you have to make do. Oh, I just love that so much. <laughs> yes, yes. Oh. <laughs> Uh, well, I feel like that's a good note to end on. <laughs> great, great. Yeah. Uh, thanks so much for coming on, Deb. I really, I, yes, I want to have you on again if you're ever willing, because I just love talking to you. I'd love to. I feel the same way. It's great to talk to you. Where can people find your new book? Um, it's going to be for sales starting on the 15th, which I think is the day this is actually coming out. So um, yep. today. Um, it'll be available, um, on Amazon for sure. You can buy it in ebook form or the paperback. Um, and it'll also be available in Barnes and Noble. Um, you can, if you want an autographed copy or, uh, if you just want to shop local, you can, um, also buy it from my publisher's website, which is madisonhousepublishing.com. Um, so it'll be available from there too. Oh, great. Well, I'll put links to all those places in the show notes. And um, I just know I'm already have like three people in mind that I'm going to buy this book for. So, well, awesome. Thanks so much. <laughs> <laughs>